Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, where we are making old school young again. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard. I am the R-N-O-S-R, and joining... Let me not accidentally mute my microphone while I'm uh, doing my intro here. Joining us this evening is uh, one of the few people from Frog God Games that I have not talked to on the show before. Uh, I famously said that I've had almost everyone but the janitor on from Frog God. So uh, joining us this evening is one of the partners there. Also, uh, you know, he, he's worked with Chaosium. He's worked at Cubicle 7. He's worked on One Ring. I know several of you out there are huge One Ring fans. But ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the man who is here to talk all about Northland Saga, Lord of Ice and Cold tonight. It is Ken Spencer. Welcome to Rolling Bones. Everyone, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think after we conclude your appearance, the legitimately the only person left that has not been on Rolling Bones uh, from Frog God is Edwin Nagy. And I was on this whole dungeon with him. So, Edwin, come on. Let's lay the challenge down, Edwin. You got to come. You got to be on Rolling Bones. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact... I'll, I'll I'll see Edwin in Texas. I'm pretty sure. So, I think he's going. I don't know. I don't know. Are you going to North Texas? Let's let's I'm be a in special there. guest at next North Texas this year. Nice, awesome. So I will see you there in person. Mm, yeah, indeed. Uh, and I'll be running uh, for Northlands. So I will be running uh, the Hall of Herod. Nice, which is going to be a uh, Beowulf themed. Uh, almost like a tournament situation. There's going to be waves of monsters from our new Tome of Horrors book. Mm. Uh, well, from Tome of Horrors and Tome of Horrors 2020. And we're going to give out awards for, and it'll be hosted by Frog God and Why Not Games. We'll give out awards for uh, Longest Survivor, Messiest Kill, Beth, Best Death Song. Nice. I, I hope that's not during one of the games that I'm running, because I, I would like to be a part of that. It sounds like a ton of fun. Anyway, to uh, to begin our conversation here tonight, uh, there are questions everyone gets asked when they come on Rolling Bones for the first time. So, Ken, let's sure. kind of start at the beginning here. How did you get into role-playing games as a whole? Oh, well, um, I grew up in, uh, as a Navy brat. Mm. Uh, and we had just relocated and moved off base uh, to a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in maryland and it was an old beautiful rambling victorian house with a creepy attic and a creepy basement uh between us and the town was a cemetery 
um, just a great place for imagination to spark, but not a great place for making new friends. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for something to do. My dad had raised me on the Avalon Hill boxed games. Yeah. And I kept seeing advertisements in the back of Conan the Barbarian comic for this thing called Dungeons and Dragons. And it's a box set, and it's the same size and shape of those old Avalon Hill box games. Mm -hmm. So I picked one up uh, next time we were at the mall, and I brought it home, and there weren't any counters or maps. (laughs) And there were these weird dice, and but there were solo adventures, so I was able to play by myself. Hmm. And I bought a whole bunch of those early solo adventures. This was about 1984. And eventually, within six months, we relocated again because that was that was the life. And I happened to land in the neighborhood with other kids who played D&D. Hmm. So I got to have my first gaming group and it exploded from there. Now, were there like several subsequent moves after that one? Uh, just, you know, kind of growing up with a, <laughs> being a Navy brat? <laughs> Yes, uh, 16 moves in 18 years. Gotcha. And did did you find that that Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games was kind of a way to make new friends each time you moved, or did that kind of oh, go by the wayside at some certainly. point? After I after I started playing D&D, um, and then we moved again, and I found kids who played. Hmm. And then uh, we did our, our final move, which was then my dad went onto the reserve list and we ended up moving to Indianapolis, Indiana. Gotcha. So as far away from the coast as you can possibly, possibly get. <laughs> yeah. And it first day at the new high school and what's the clubs here? Well, there's a D and D club. So I met a bunch of people there. I met, uh, I met the person that introduced me to my wife mm-hmm. at the D and D club in high school. I mean, it was years later, yeah. well after college. But yeah, I made friends who are still friends of mine to this day playing D&D with them. I, I never thought about this until you said that, but role-playing really is kind of a way for people who have that nomadic lifestyle, whether they're, you know, their families move around a lot for different reasons or whether they're, they're military brats, uh, Having role playing in your life is a it's a gateway to essentially automatic friends. If you stumble upon a situation where people are playing role playing games in whatever town you end up in, so I, I've never mm-hmm. thought about that particular angle on role playing, but I do feel like that's kind of an advantage for anyone who's moving from town to town. If you have that interest, then you can find a social group relatively quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, when my wife and I moved from Indianapolis to Vincennes, which is about mm, 120, 130 miles away, depending on which route you take mm-hmm. from me, uh, I was leaving behind folks I had known since high school. And, you know, we were well out of college into our, our actually, we were into our early 30s at the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I said, if this was where we're going to move to and you're going to take a job here and I'm going to take a job here, do they have a game store? <laughs> Because if they have a game store, then I have people I could drop in and I'll have friends within a week. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And sure enough, uh, actually this past Sunday, I was playing games with folks that I met when I moved here 15 years ago. Gotcha. So are y'all still in Indiana? Yes, indeed. 
Yes, indeed. Are are you uh, anywhere in the vicinity of Luau Lu? Where does Luau Lu live? I think he lives around the Lafayette area, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I don't okay. know how far that's, away uh, that is from that's, you. That's about an hour north of Indy itself. Yep. So that's for us to get to Lafayette, because we go up there for the Feast of the Hunter's Moon every now and then, which is a huge fur trade era rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Uh, 18th century era rendezvous at 40, 50,000 people there mm-hmm. every year. Uh, reenactment sort of thing. Uh, we go up there every now and then. It's about a three and a half, four hour drive from us. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so and no. I know Matt Finch <laughs> is up in uh, Fort Wayne, which is clear diagonally across the state. Yeah. Um, if you picture Indiana and Indianapolis is the bright light in the center of the state, mm-hmm. Vincennes is the town furthest from it. <laughs> Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I I never grew up anywhere that rural, but I definitely grew up rural uh, in North Carolina. So I, I feel you on that one. Uh, it, it was a culture shock. Um, having lived in places like Norfolk, Virginia, mm. uh, San Diego and Long Beach in California and uh, Indianapolis. Um, and then suddenly... I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. What do, you, what do you mean there's 15,000 people in this town? <laughs> there should be 15,000 people in your neighborhood. Yep. <laughs> now, uh, the, the next introductory question that I have for you, and then I actually kind of want to circle back to yeah. other topics that we've uh, touched on here, but to kind of close out the the introductory questions... Those of us who are, you know, into gaming, suffice it to say, there, there's not a lot of money involved in in this hobby. There's not a lot of accolades or fame to be found outside of a very small circle. So those of us who devote time to it, we do it out of a love and appreciation for this hobby, which comes from our fond memories of playing games with our friends and loved ones. So, Ken, if you had to pick a fondest rpg memory what would that be oh wow keep in mind i've been playing since 1984 yeah um so there's been a whole host of of interesting and fun things that have happened um it's hard to pick out just one uh but uh oh wow see i, I this is a hard question for me <laughs> Uh, I'm one of those people who folks are like, so what's your top five movies? And I'm like, ah, I like a lot of movies. (laughs) Yep. Um, we had a, uh, this is right after, right at the very tail end of, of my college days. Must've been maybe 98 or 99. Uh, we had 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 a legends of the five rings game going for quite a while. Um, and we decided to, over Christmas vacation, have a throwdown and have the big finale. Mm-hmm. So we cleared everyone's calendars, made sure the dates were right, and we had a three-day game session. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, literally cleared everything out of a buddy's apartment in his living room and threw down mattresses and set up tables and all dressed up in our uh our uh 
old martial arts geese and kimonos and <laughs> got carry out Chinese and sushi and played L5R for three days straight, stopping only to sleep. When the GM was done and getting wonky, we called it a break. <laughs> um, that was that was an amazing RPG experience. Uh, and that group, you know, that group split up not long after that and, and graduated or moved on and went our separate ways. So it was kind of a, a bittersweet farewell to, to that phase of our lives. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, tons of, tons of great memories. Um, the, uh, the Pendragon games that went on forever as we tried to make it through the great Pendragon campaign and never mm-hmm. did because they always petered out. Uh, just a few years ago, right before the pandemic, we had a Savage Worlds, a Ripper's Savage Worlds game that ended because there's this moment where they realized they could fight their, they could try and fight off the horde of undead mm-hmm. in this abandoned mine. But if they lost, there'd be a zombie apocalypse in Colorado and possibly <laughs> across the world. Yep. So they all paused for a moment and the players looked at each other and one of them said, should we? And another player said, yeah, I've got the dynamite. Let's bring the cave down on them. <laughs> and they TPK'd themselves. Right? I mean, just... Mm-hmm. That was it. That was the end of the campaign. But it was a glorious end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they made the heroic sacrifice. Exactly. Exactly. Those are the moments I like the best. When things really... People get into character and they play heroically... And they play in genre, and they do these these sorts of uh, these sorts of well, the heroic sacrifice. They they aren't playing to win a game, right? They're playing to finish the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's an kind of another side of the TPK thing. There, there's a lot of discourse around whether or not TPKs are a good thing. I, I recently had a guest on. Uh, who said that he considered a TPK, every single TPK, that he had a personal failure on his part, which I don't think is a healthy way to you know think about no. things. But there's this other side of the TPK that never really gets talked about in all of that discourse, and that's when your players decide to be the ultimate heroes and sacrifice their lives. Essentially, we're going to end everything right here, whether or not we walk away from it. And I, I, I don't know how rare that is. I don't know how often that occurs in games, but in situations where it all comes together that way of, uh, you know, to, to quote Billy Joel, we will all go down together. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that, that can be a very powerful end to a game, uh, even though your character died, even though your whole party got wiped. You know, that's a, that's a moment and that's a memory. Exactly. I mean, I look at it as we're not playing a video game where, you know, you've had to invest a certain amount of money into leveling up your character or buying this microtransaction or that microtransaction. Mm-hmm. You've invested fun with your friends. Yeah. And sometimes that's the way the story ends. Not all stories are going to end happily. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all stories are going to end with everyone dying and it's an unhappy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be a it could be a powerful moment, but it could also be a rewarding moment. Absolutely. Um, and it's 
you know, those are those are some of the moments that stand out. Um, mm-hmm. And I've had TPKs that are a result of bad dice rolls. I've had TPKs that are a result of poor planning on the the part of the players. And bad dice rolls usually happen because there's been poor planning. Yeah. Um, and they put themselves in that situation. And sometimes it's just bad luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we roll out in the open. So it's hard as the GM to be like, ah, oh, I'm going to fudge the result of that when everyone's <laughs> looking at a bunch of ones across the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in that situation especially like if you don't roll behind the screen and even if you do roll behind the screen i've kind of soured on the concept of fudging dice myself um you need to be like honest with your players and you need to roll with the situation that you're given Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean that's that's just how it goes sometimes and sometimes there's just no controlling for it exactly and sometimes the players make bad choices yeah definitely Uh, i remember a game a while back um i can't even remember the rest of the game i just remember the ending uh they had an interdimensional el camino (laughs) and somehow they had picked up uh and they had all the clues they needed to put everything together but one of the players decided that the answer to the puzzle was to drive the el camino into a black hole (laughs) And I'm sitting there, and I look him right in the eye. I'm like, I don't think that's the best idea. He's like, no, that's what we're going to (laughs) do. And talks everyone else into it. And the party held hands and Thelma and Louise did right into the vault, right into the black hole. (laughs) And they're looking at me, and I'm like, I got nothing here, guys. (laughs) And then on the other hand, we we had a Wild West game that ended with a shootout in a basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and the tunnels beneath San Francisco. Yep, a shootout in the basement, and it it came down to one bad guy left, the leader <laughs> of the rival gang, and the gunslinger from the PC group, mm-hmm. each with one bullet left, back to back on opposite sides of the wall, next to an empty door, open doorway. And it came down to, okay, you guys spin around and pull the trigger, roll to hit. And that was that was it. If he had made, you know, if he had not missed, mm-hmm. the party could have continued. Yeah. But that was a dramatic moment, and everybody remembered that. Oh, that was a great firefight. One of my players paused it about four rounds and was like, I'm going out for a smoke. Don't don't do anything. I just <laughs> I need a cigarette. And he's walking up and down the street outside the game store where we were playing and just, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, now I'm just thinking about the, the scene in Inglorious Bastards where uh, Brad Pitt says you don't have to be Stonewall Jackson to know the disadvantages of fighting in a basement, namely that you're fighting in a basement. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... God, situations like that i so often you hear about the positive outcomes of stuff like that of you know he got the you know he got the natural 20 right when he needed it but for every one of those stories i'm sure there's about 10 that no one wants to tell of yeah he didn't actually make that role and uh the bad guys won mm-hmm. but you know that's them's the dice, as they say. Them, them's the dice, and then you have good endings. We had a, a one of our L five R campaigns uh, ended with uh, one of the players uh, becoming the new emperor, mm-hmm. 
because uh, through various incidents, the Imperial family was wiped out. Uh, so the PCs left were the diamos of the clans. So they elected someone to be emperor. Who, by the way, was the player who missed that session. <laughs> <laughs> so we're texting, guess who's emperor? And he's like, no. <laughs> and then we did a montage of everyone's life afterwards. Mm-hmm. So that was that was fun, and then I ended a, a World War II horror camp, a Weird War II campaign. Uh, that was a TPK, but they went down heroically, mm-hmm. uh, stopping the stopping the big monsters, the big bads. Yeah, uh, from stealing a uh, little boy. The bad guys were going to steal the new what, the sec yeah the second uh, atomic bomb mm-hmm. and uh, use it for their own purposes, and they stopped them, but they all died in the end. And uh, we did a montage of uh, their families receiving the notification. Mm. So kind of grim, dark, but also kind of... And then what happened with their families afterwards and yep. that sort of thing. Uh, because we had ran that game. Uh, we had done... It was during the pandemic. So we were trying to figure out new things to do because we're playing online now. Mm-hmm. So everybody was sending in letters to me as the GM, their letters home. And then every week I was emailing them back the letters from their, their family and their friends back in the States. Mm-hmm. So we had this thing going. So we almost had two campaigns going this like <laughs> grim, horrific world war two weird war horror campaign. And then this like, melodrama back home home front campaign going with the letters going back and forth Mm -hmm. so we were able to set up a nice ending to all of that man that's that that's a kind of cool dimension to like an an ending to a campaign like that where because you have to think in that situation they died preventing the theft of something that really like Americans didn't know existed until it was exactly. dropped on Japan. So essentially the families are getting these uh, letters saying your loved one was one of the greatest heroes that this country had known. You know, they really kind of, you know, gave their lives in the, the greatest sacrifice they could possibly give. And no one will ever know about this. Exactly. So that was that was a big part of it. Um, and part of the whole what happens to your, your family and loved ones after the war was we just sort of all sat together and montaged and everyone took turns. Uh, we were playing Savage Worlds, so it has a yeah. card mechanic, card deck mechanic. So we kind of use that to guide it. Uh, and we kind of all created it at together at the tape, well, virtual table mm-hmm. and ended up with all of their kids going into the uh, government's secret paranormal investigations thing. So we set it up so that we can do a Cold War version of the campaign later. Nice. With everybody's kids or nieces and nephews, uh, that sort of thing. Nice. Now, kind of changing subjects completely. um, (laughs) You you mentioned... uh, you mentioned this before we went on the air, and then you mentioned a little bit of it when we were talking about uh, Lafayette, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you are by trade a you know, an archaeologist, 
So yeah, that was my original training and my occupation before I started writing. Mm-hmm. So so I have to ask, what influence, if any, did role playing have on your career path as far as pursuing archaeology? Oh, um, quite a bit actually. Uh, I played way too much Call of Cthulhu in high school. <laughs> And the idea of uncovering mysteries and that a heroic character could be a college professor <laughs> kind of took hold of me. And, you know, you play enough D&D, you explore ruins and you want to go off and do that. And the exposure to history that D&D has, especially mm-hmm. uh, older D&D and the OSR being somewhat more grounded in historical influences than more modern versions of D&D, encourages you to read more and study more. Yeah. And next thing you know, you're looking at your college majors and you know a whole lot about the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and you know a whole lot about uh, uh wilderness outdoor survival sort of things at least you think you do because you know you've been role playing it and it's a springboard to go off and learn more and go off and actually have adventures for a while so Mm -hmm. i i was a legitimate adventurer for many many years Mm -hmm. absolutely and i didn't take an arrow to the knee but i certainly got arthritis from crouching in a hole (laughs) and digging yep and uh, just to just to take a quick aside here, because uh, he popped up in chat, uh, everyone out there who's watching, uh, definitely uh, say a prayer or you know have your thoughts with Crafty Matt here in chat. He's dealing with something uh, really difficult with one of his uh, his cats being sick, so oh, no. uh, that's not a, a good situation for anyone to be in. So you know, Crafty, our our hearts and our thoughts and our prayers are with you right now. Uh, you know, I, I hope that, that Phoebe pulls through. So, you know, you know, I, again, that's not a, that's not a fun situation to be in. It, it's only been about six months since I lost a cat myself. So, you know, I, my heart is with you right now, brother. But, uh, wow. Uh, that's, that's yeah, a dark road to go down. So, well, um, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, we had to put my wife's dog down, so. Oh man, I'm so sorry. Getting old, and you know, at a certain point, mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't. He was in more pain than anything else. Yep. Yeah, and our the door came open, so you may see one of our cats in a moment. Mm-hmm. Actually, you may see a cat. Get out of there! Sorry. <laughs> All good. Our our girl was 15. Um, oh wow! And she, or actually, she made it to 16. And she lived so much longer than her health issues would have permitted in almost any other cat. But, you know, it's it's a difficult situation, even knowing, yeah, and, and Crafty's uh, cat is not, like, there's still hope for Crafty's cat. Well, so yeah. it's, it, but yeah. It, it, I hope uh, Phoebe pulls through. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We, we hope Phoebe pulls through. But yeah, it's it's a hard situation, and mm-hmm. I I don't I don't wish that upon anyone. But um, to to get back to kind of happier yeah. topics, um, it's it's interesting that you mention how kind of steeped in history 
uh, classic role-playing is, because I, I think a lot of people like myself who began gaming in the, the modern, the 5e era, a lot of us don't have much exposure to the fact that role-playing has a, a really kind of academic bend to it from the early days the way that Gygax wrote the way that Arneson wrote it was very mm -hmm. dense it was very academic and it was very kind of hard to parse and so for the you know first 10 even 15 years of role-playing the majority of gamers were academics or the academically inclined so the, the fact that that kind of appeals to you and that drives you into a, a field that requires a lot of education, a lot of training and a lot of kind of academic rigor, I, I think is it's interesting to think of D&D &D and role playing games in that regard as something that can push you towards kind of higher education in a way. Oh, exactly. And it it's a creative endeavor, but it's also especially the earlier days of it, uh, an intensely intellectual endeavor, mm -hmm. the amount of math to figure some of this out, especially some of the games, uh, some of traveler and, uh, traveler 2300, you know, you're, you're running a quadratic equation to figure out the, where your <laughs> ship's going, yeah, where your spaceship's going, uh, that sort of thing, the math, but also this, uh, focus on, academics and gaming as an intellectual endeavor is something that's still there uh certainly um but it used to be a lot more and it's part of the evolution of the fantasy genre yep. so we see a lot less forbidden lore a lot less you know ancient tomes a lot less of these ideas that there is knowledge out there that's been lost and needs to be recovered or needs to be discovered that sort of thing mm -hmm. that there used to be more prevalent within the, the adventure and the setting writing. Yeah. And again, it's the evolution of the fantasy genre. Things mm -hmm. change and grow and new tropes come in and replace old ones. And then those themselves get replaced by something else. I'm excited to see what fantasy is going to be like in 20 years from now. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see the way that that fantasy changes in that regard. I my personal hope, and I, I kind of see the wind shifting in this direction because I don't see where else it could go. I kind of see things getting back to more of that uh, like pulp route, almost more in the mm -hmm. uh, the Liber Howard direction, because it feels like fantasy has become very kind of bloated and uh decadent in a lot of ways there's a lot of uh just overindulgence in certain uh you know tropes and and ideas that i feel like the the way for fantasy to go forward is to strip back some of the excesses and get back to something a little bit more raw a little bit more gritty and maybe in kind of stripping that back we'll get more to like the academic roots of fantasy in kind of a, a Tolkien way as well. Oh, I agree. Uh, starting with the Song of Roland or starting with, um, well, like I have done with Northland Saga, starting with the, the Norse sagas, mm -hmm. uh, going back to a folkloric and mythic 
basis for your fantasy, I think, will be what's going to be next. Yeah, I think we're going to see a whole lot of that because at a certain point you get tired of and you CGI creeps into our imagination. Yeah, we see it on the screen. We see it in the movie theater and there's nothing wrong with that. And eventually we start visualizing things in that manner. Mm -hmm. And then for writers, you start writing what your inner eye is seeing. So things become bigger and brighter and flashier. And there's this push to be more outrageous. Yeah. And there's always a counter reaction to things. Uh, uh, our, my gaming group ranges in age from people in their 20s to people uh, pushing 50. Mm -hmm. So we've got several generations there at the table. Well, yeah. actually, my son plays with one of our groups. So I guess a teenager on up to pushing people almost 50. Yep. So we've got this broad range of age groups. So we get to see these different approaches to what our expectations of what fantasy is going to have. Mm -hmm. and <clears throat> that's a good thing because it keeps things fresh and it's always good to have new perspectives uh but it also means that we have to run games that are a little more big tent yep so you start getting a feel for what different strands are looking for and what expectations are and i think that we're starting to get the post game of thrones bloat out yes. of our system mm -hmm. um and we're ready to move on as a, a zeitgeist onto some sort of new idea new trope yeah uh, and watching these tropes cycle through and watching it cycle through people of various ages and people of various experiences with the genre for some people the subversion of the classic tropes is still their thing you know they go well what if the knight isn't rescuing the princess from the dragon, but it's something else is going on. You know, the princess and the dragon are involved romantically and the knight's an interloper and these sorts of things. And then for someone who's of my age, we've already seen that subverted. Yeah. So the subversion isn't new, but playing that trope straight is something we haven't seen in a while. So watching these expectations collide, mingle and create something new. Is a fascinating thing to walk, thing to experience. Yeah. Now you you mentioned uh, taking things back to uh, the the sagas and, and mythology of old. So I have to ask in in talking about Northland Saga, uh, is there a little bit of uh, Broken Sword uh, Paul Anderson influence on on this particular uh, setting and and these adventures? No, there's more Snorting Starfelsen, uh, Saga of the Venlanders, Saga of the Icelanders, gotcha. uh, Beowulf. Uh, I went back to the sources' sources. Gotcha. Uh, I, I used to joke when I was working on the One Ring that, you know, Tolkien and I are working from the same source material. We're just getting different <laughs> results. Yep. Because, you know, my writing is on par with Tolkien, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the same way that I and Robert E. Howard are the same, just because we're distant relatives. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, but it's it's going back to uh, the mythological origins of fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's um, Northland Saga is heavily inspired by history and by myth. Yeah, but it's not a game about history and myth. Gotcha. I didn't intend for it to be. Well, here's the North Sagas 
and the Norse myths put forward to you as a role-playing game. It's mm. inspired by. It's still a fantasy world. You still have your D&D classic fantasy tropes in there. They're just with a very Viking twist to it and a strong uh, influence from history mm -hmm. as opposed to being a game of history, which are two very different sorts of games. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Viking Viking themed stuff. Um, and I say this as a tremendous fan of Jack Kirby. Mm -hmm. I feel like, unfortunately what Kirby did with kind of the Norse mythology and Viking mythos was uh, take it in a particular direction where everyone who wants to do something a little bit different with it has to face the expectations of, well, this isn't like Thor from Marvel Comics. <laughs> yes, uh, I tend to use um, uh, other names for the Norse deities. Yeah. So Thor is considered the... Uh, the new new way of saying it mm -hmm. uh, but i'll use like donar and votan and uh friga and those sorts of names instead which are from a different southern germanic i guess you could say continental germanic yeah. Mm -hmm. uh but yeah that's northland saga was written about the same time that the first iron man movie came out so there was never the thought when we created the first Northland Saga adventures, what, 13 years ago, mm -hmm. that you know, there would be a Thor movie. <laughs> I mean, who would, who would have thought that? Who would have mm -hmm. thought that Marvel would have been the biggest movies for the next 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. Especially at that point. Cause I mean, it was just, I, I remember when it came out, uh, you know, thinking oh, an Iron Man movie. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. You're going to start. Really? <laughs> okay. Is he drunk? <laughs> Is that what we're going to watch? Two yeah. hours of drunken Iron Man stumbling around? <laughs> um, yeah, I did not expect that. And the X-Men movies weren't so great. The Fantastic Four movies weren't so great. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. I, I had very low expectations going into that movie theater. Yeah. And uh, was happily, happily surprised. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to Vikings and when it comes to Northland Saga... Uh, you, you're dealing with an environment that I feel personally is underrepresented, not just in fantasy, not just in D&D, but in lots of adventure fiction. And that is a uh, a cold environment, a snowy mm. environment. So when it comes to what differentiates kind of snow and ice from your typical uh, kind of adventurous terrain, whether it's uh, like dense forests, jungles, or dungeons. What is it about the cold and the ice that creates a, a tense and dramatic environment for adventures to take place? Well, for me, most of... Uh, we I bounced around a lot as a Navy brat, but most of it was bouncing around Southern California. Mm -hmm. So to me, snow and ice, especially deep snow and frozen lakes and, you know mountains covered in pine trees their boughs dripping drooping with the amount of snow on them your breath freezing in your beard that's foreign and exotic uh the desert that's nothing like <laughs> tatooine lawrence of arabia watching those movies as a kid psh, that's i've seen that you know i've been to the salton sea it's just dunes who cares that's nothing special but uh empire strikes back the battle on hoth blew my mind away 
because at that point in my life, I had not seen snow like that, except for a few trips up into the mountains where you just see it out the car window and then you drive away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> snow wasn't a normal. So to me, it's a strange alien environment. It's uh, you lose opportunities. You can't camp anywhere you want. Mm-hmm. You have to worry about being wet. You have to worry about being cold. Um, there's the the slipperiness of the terrain. There's a lot of difficult terrain in the Northland Saga Adventures, especially as we go on and on. Because spring right starts in the spring. Yeah. Spears and the ice is on an iceberg. So you've got the slipperiness of it. But you've also got this city carved out of ice on the iceberg. So it's a dungeon crawl where you can, in many places, see into the next corridor. <laughs> but you can't see clearly. Uh, it's the idea that you could freeze to death. Yep. Um, you get cut when you're out in the cold, and it hurts more. And I don't know why, but it just hurts more to get a bad cut when it's in the snow. I did archaeology in the snow. I worked sites in the winter where we had to use propane heaters to thaw out the ground. Yeah. Uh, and indirect heat. You know, the idea that I have to put a blanket on the ground so that it's not frozen solid the next morning. That's, that's almost horrifying. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a unnatural temperature for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's what's driven some of the, the Northland saga. Uh, what drives the whole Lord of ice and snow saga Ice and cold is that Althanok is the demon lord of ice and cold. Mm-hmm. And he wants to turn the whole world into a femoral winter, an eternal winter, and yeah. freeze everything. That to me is one of the most horrifying ends you can have to a world. Absolutely. To me, one of the kind of most terrifying aspects of, of winter and cold and ice is the fact that almost nothing can survive or thrive in it. So the stuff that actually can survive is extremely, like, beyond comprehension, tough and capable Mm -hmm. of survival. And also probably hasn't seen uh, what could be considered a meal in quite some time. So here come... In the context of D&D or other role-playing games, here come your adventurers. And they're stumbling upon, uh, you know, a snow leopard or a yeti or a remoraz or, you know, whatever it is that hasn't seen a fresh meal in weeks. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, there you are, and this thing is adapted to survive in this environment. It knows it. Um, yeah, that kind of danger... I think really creates an interesting environment. Exactly. And you are hampered because it's not your, your native environment. Right. It can move across the snow and ice. It has the, uh, it has the the special abilities to ignore that difficult terrain. You have to slug through three foot snow. So you're moving at half speed. Mm -hmm. So it's the, the classic horror. That's a classic nightmare of no matter how hard you run, you can't get away from the monster. Right. Yeah, and I, honestly, I I feel like because of the danger, uh, but also because just you know there's a lack of media that you know presents this. 
the snow and the ice and the cold is a very uh, untapped market for potential adventures. Uh, like, just, just kind of thinking about, even beyond Viking stuff, um, if you look at, like, westerns, there are plenty of western regions that get lots of snow and ice where mm-hmm. you could have kind of a, a cowboy adventure that involves dealing with snow, dealing with a blizzard, almost like the beginning of Red Dead Redemption 2, or now I can't even remember the name of the, the spaghetti western that's set in the snow. Um, oh, several. But, well, I'm right now looking above my desk at Larry Elmore's The Ice Boats. Yeah. Uh, from uh, the second dra- second series, well, the Dragonlance Adventures for the second series, second novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dragon's Winter Night. And that was one that stuck in my head. The idea of these long ships, and I would put it in a Northland saga, but it's just too much of Larry Elmore and, mm. and Margaret Vice sort of thing. I would feel like I would be copying them, stealing from them. Yep. Uh, the long ships on the uh, ice runners mm-hmm. across the glacier. That's just a great idea. Um, that sort of thing. But yeah, the there's not enough not enough winter stuff out there, not enough seasonal stuff in general, and not enough use of weather. How many times have you in an adventure gone, oh, well, you know, the weather's a factor. If it's a a maritime adventure, sure, you've had to roll on a weather table. But how many comfortable summer days have your adventurers walked through? Yep. How much grass have they encountered? Exactly. Just, sorry. Hmm. The trouble kitty found the edge of my fur cloak. <laughs> Absolutely. They always do. Usually, they... usually we keep them out of the office during interviews, but mm. they got the door open and now they're they're rampaging. Yep. Well, two of the three cats in here are rampaging. Mm-hmm. The fat old cat is turned into a puddle. She's she's going to sleep. I I used to let my, my male cat Ronan kind of come in and out, but he has this bad habit of sitting on the desk. And then he'll just either swipe at me or bite me if I don't pet him. And then eventually oh. he'll just bite me or swipe at me anyway. We've we've got an orange tabby who likes to push cups off the of tables. <laughs> that's that's his favorite hobby. Yep. So we everyone is very careful about it. Mm-hmm. But now the. It, it's interesting just kind of mentioning weather tables because, again, I, I feel like survival has become an element of the gameplay in all role-playing games that people have glossed over or set aside because, you know, it can be a nuisance, it can be cumbersome, you know, whatever the, the reason. But the weather really does drive a lot of decision-making in a lot of uh, you know fantasy literature, I mean, the, to to point out the the biggest example of this, the only reason the Fellowship goes into the mines of Moria is because they don't want to deal with the blizzard and mm-hmm. the giants fighting with each other. So when you don't ignore those elements, when you kind of force players into situations where the weather is a factor, or you know, there's some kind of other circumstance it can force them into scenarios where they make decisions that essentially are, are, are dealing with, you know, wh- what's the best of two bad options or three bad options here. 
Uh, and it can make for more exciting and more interesting role play where your players are forced into scenarios they never thought they would be just because the weather is a lot different than what they traditionally expected or you actually paid attention to what the implications of that weather would be. For me, it's a case of two things. One is that good gaming is based upon good decisions and good decisions are informed decisions. Yep. And everybody knows if I say it's raining, what that means. Uh, you may have to expand upon it because unless you've done uh, done some hiking, you don't understand that when it's raining, it means not only do you move slower, but you're more likely to have a fall. You're more likely to slide down a hill. Uh, streams are going to be more difficult to pass or impassable at times. Uh, that's part of it. But another part of it for me is that weather has changed history mm. so many times. Uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066, we all know about Hastings in 1066, but the same time, just a few days earlier, was the Battle of Stamford Bridge, uh, which altered the history of England because there was a Norse army, Norwe Harold Hadrada's army, Norwegian for the most part, uh, had invaded. And it was a hot day. It was an unusually hot day in October. Mm -hmm. So they took their armor off and hopped in the river. Right when the English army showed up. Weather changed the outcome of that battle. Because they had to form their shield wall without any armor on. Yeah. They didn't have time to get their armor on. That's part of it. Uh, when you consider that uh, how many battles the outcome is based upon the weather. Uh, Creasy, Agincourt, Poitiers, all during the Hundred Years' War, the outcome was changed because the ground was muddy. Because yeah. it rained the night before. Those sorts of things. And then even more dramatic, uh, the Mongol invasion of Japan. Because a typhoon blew up, the fleet was destroyed. Mm -hmm. Weather affects history and can change history even you know these these almost micro weather events i mean a typhoon sounds like a micro a macro but it's a micro weather event compared to droughts mm -hmm. famines caused by the drought those sorts of things uh and i think that needs to be in the game because our heroes need to to face that with northland saga with the saga of the lord ice and cold um he's a demon god of winter yeah. So weather keeps repeating throughout the adventure series again and again and again how it affects things. And Spring writes the uh, a storm at the end of the, the final battle in that adventure, if your heroes don't mess it up. Hmm. <laughs> uh, at the end, there's a rain at the final battle, and that affects their ability to go up a hill. Yeah, And they have to get up that hill. And the slower they are going up the hill the worse the fight's going to be. Hmm. Yeah, and even uh, to, to expand on your point, even beyond just your your uh, weather anomalies or, or you know, micro events, even just kind of weather behaving as it normally would in certain regions influences history. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. There's a reason why every single... Uh, invasion, every single land invasion of Russia has gone as poorly as it has. It has to do with the climate uh, that you, you find yourself in when you engage in these regions in certain uh, periods of time. So 
I, I definitely think that, you know, just looking at history, looking at the way that weather has affected historical outcomes and historical events, there's no reason not to implement it in your games. Oh, not at all. Uh, and it should be a part of your world design, too. Uh, that's one of the things that interests me about the world of lost lands that we have at frog god is we've got the currents and the weather patterns in the book mm -hmm. because those are going to be major effects on the world on your characters yeah it drives me crazy when people treat sailing travel as being i'm gonna get in the boat and i'm just gonna drive it on over the <laughs> that's not yep. it's not the way it works folks mm -hmm. the wind's got to be coming from the right direction it's one of the reasons why Dark Sun is such a beloved uh, setting for me. It just the, the climate of Athos is so much of the challenge of that particular world. Um, so, so I love it when people pay attention to that. And an, another aspect of that that you've kind of hit on a couple times, you're dealing with a demon in this particular in the Northland saga, Lord of Ice and Cold, you're dealing with a demon. And I think a lot of people have this perception of demons as, you know, fire, brimstone, that, oh, yeah. that kind of aspect. But again, bringing it back to the idea that winter and cold is the absence of life. It's the, you know, most everything dies in the presence of cold, of ice and snow. And most things being dead is a demonic idea. It's an idea that evokes a lot of bad feeling and unease in players. And so the idea of a uh, demon essentially creating a domain of ice and cold is, uh, no pun intended, a chilling concept. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and I use, uh, I use the term demon in a very Howardian or uh, Librarian sort of way it, it's an extra dimensional entity of malevolence and great power mm -hmm. uh, a demon lord so almost of of deific uh proportions but the idea is throughout the entire sagas our heroes face the demons minions time and time again they'll eventually defeat them mm -hmm. uh, we have uh the start here that we're running the indiegogo campaign and because it's the way i write we have the ending done. Yeah. And we want to run campaigns for all the adventures in between. And we'll reveal to all of you what that means as we go. But to a certain degree, I'll find out as I write them what that means. Because mm -hmm. there's points that are set and points that are variable at this point and can still be still be altered here or there. Um but the reoccurring theme that this is is a chilling demonic force that the world could end and our heroes are the ones who are fated to stop it. Fate, destiny, weird, uh, those are all reoccurring themes within the Norse myth, within the, the original Old Norse sagas. Mm -hmm. And we try and hit upon that in the Northland saga. There's certain things that are fated to happen. Yeah. And our heroes can't change that but they're not the major parts of the plot. They're used as forces to drive the plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that hits on kind of a very real aspect of, you know, human existence. There are a lot of things that are inevitable that will just happen that you cannot change yourself. And it turns into how you react to it. So I think 
that concept making its way into a role-playing game is something that will hit home for a lot of people when they experience it. Because yes, there's this big, tremendous, scary thing on the horizon that you see coming. You know it's on the way. You can't do anything about it, but you can control how your character reacts in that situation and how you move forward knowing that this is coming and, you know, once it comes, knowing that, you know, the impact is what it is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, well, I mean, for me, because of my background as an archaeologist, that derives straight from classical Stoic philosophy. Yes. Uh, you have to, you can't control the outside, you control the inside. Mm-hmm. You can't control the world, you control your response to the world. Yeah. And I, that permeates into my writing. Um, because most, I even... We're writing role-playing games here. There's yeah. a certain point where, like, we're, we're writing role-playing games, guys. <laughs> uh, but there's also a certain amount of everything that appears in the literature also appears with us, too, in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Uh, it doesn't, just because it's got a sword and an axe and a magic spell and an evil demon doesn't mean it can't have literary elements. Mm-hmm. And doesn't mean that this aspect of the human condition can't be reflected. Right. Because all of us reading it and playing it in our homes, we are incorporating that with our own experience into creating a new story. And creation and creativity is creation creativity. Rather, it is uh, Nobel Prize winning or any award winning. It's mm-hmm. still creation and creativity. Even if it's just six friends around a table who are making a new story, it all has the same base components and source and origin within the human soul and the human experience. Mm-hmm. And that was really deep for Gaia Wright's Viking fantasy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I talked about this a little bit uh, with, uh, with Greg Lambert uh, a couple weeks ago, but yeah, there, there is this aspect of uh, kind of honesty and, uh, you know, referencing the human experience and you know values that we all have shared Mm -hmm. and encountered and you know truisms about humanity that has to exist in any story whether it's a role-playing story or you know literature or a movie to get an audience to invest in what they see because it's something that rings true even beyond maybe even their their consciousness it's something that kind of strikes at the very essence of being human mm-hmm. so you know having those elements present is an elevating factor no matter the medium that you're uh you know experiencing it in hemingway wrote about a story a good story doesn't have to be true it has to have the truth yes and i think those are two different things because a true story is what happened and that's it a story with the truth is something that is believable and real to the reader. Mm-hmm. And in the end, um, we are reading. Yeah. We are reading these books and turning them into a different media. That's one of the, the one of the things that makes it difficult for any role-playing games is that I am writing for one medium, but the end user is turning it into a different medium. Mm-hmm. So you're not reading that you're not sitting there with your book in front of you reading it to your players. You're converting it into a verbal storytelling medium. Uh, sometimes with props. I'm a huge prop GM. I'll admit it. 
Uh, I fought against it for a long time, and then I became a prop GM, and I've learned to love it. Mm-hmm. And but it's still a verbal medium. It's an oral medium. I'm telling a story to my friends. That my friends are telling their parts of that story back to me. Yeah. Even if we're also moving pieces on a map. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or increasingly a three-dimensional board because my kid likes to make those. And you have a young daughter, as you will eventually find as your kid starts to make things, you have a thousand of whatever your kid likes to make. Yep. <laughs> Whatever they are, you'll end up with a thousand of them. Hmm. Absolutely. I have a stack of train boards out in the garage. And it's good, but at the same time, it's a stack of train boards out in the garage. We're never parking a car in there again. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. But no, it, it it's interesting that you mention um kind of the, the conversion of you know, one medium into another as, you know, players that turn your words into, uh, you know, imagination pictures for their players. One mm-hmm. of the ways that I think, uh, you know, role-playing games do that really well is having really evocative art. And looking at the uh, the list of artists that you have in this this book, or these books that you're, uh, you have in this campaign, mm-hmm. um, first of all, Adrian Landeros uh, is truly one of the the greats working right now. I, he, oh yeah, everything that he does. I, I, Adrian, I don't know if you have listened to any episodes of this, but I have sung your praises for years now, and someday I hope to work with you. Uh, I love your work. Well, and this isn't even a list of all of the artists. These are just the ones who mm. wanted to have, uh, were willing to contribute a blurb about themselves. Some artists don't like to talk about themselves. Some artists don't want their name. They want their name in the book and they want their check, but they don't want <laughs> to have this promotion of them. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just the way artists are sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so we have others who are in, in the book as well as these. But yeah, it's a great set of artists. It's a great amount of art. Uh, and we've got a lot of it on display there in the Indiegogo, um, and a great set of covers. Uh, it's, it's an exciting book. I've, I've passed, uh, the first late set of layouts on, uh, proofs on the, uh, on the adventures and we're moving along with those. Um, and it's been an interesting thing to work on to work with Casey about getting the look and the feel right. Mm -hmm. Uh, because he and his artists push for a more fantastical appearance. And yep. I'm always like, well, <laughs> I think the tunic's the wrong length. <laughs> I mean, I'm going for more of a 9th century vibe, and that tunic just screams 10th century to me. And you know, <laughs> I give him a hard time. For a recent project that's a, a more pirate-based, uh, I, I saw the art and I sent back a message to Casey that said, I asked for a caravel and this looks more like a cog. <laughs> oh, and yeah. I don't like the angle that the uh, that the mizzen mast is stepped at, so can we alter that by about 15 degrees? <laughs> and he's like, wait, are you serious? I'm like, no, 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 I'm just giving... Just give me a hard time, man. It's okay. It's a fantasy thing. It's fantasy <laughs> art. It looks like a ship. <laughs> it's a good-looking ship. It's cool. I like it. See, having 
having spoken to Casey twice on the show and then interacting with him in person at conventions, I can just picture him reading that email and just going, dude, it's a boat. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I enjoyed razzing him about things like that. Um, Yeah. And and it's something as an archaeologist you see. You, You spot something, you're like, oh, that's not right. Uh, my wife gives me a hard time when we watch any historically based movie because she'll be like, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing's wrong. I'm enjoying the movie. She's like, you're over there grumbling. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's a good movie. I'm enjoying it. You know, mm-hmm. it's a good movie. It's just that type of muscle curious wasn't invented until 100 years later. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah. That- so being able to put that aside that's one of the reasons why northland saga is a fantasy setting inspired by history rather than a historical setting because there are very few players who want to play in a historical setting Mm. Uh, not because it's not fun but because it's a type of fun for a type of person yeah and no one wants to play the game be like i want to be a viking with a big two-handed axe and then have the gm go well Actually, this is set in the 8th century before the Dane Axe became popular. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, but I want to be a Viking. Well, the Vikings no never wore horned helmets, so... Uh... Exactly. Exactly. I'm willing to waive that for Northland Saga. Yeah. Horned helmets are okay. Let's just keep it down. Spangle helms? I want a lot of Spangle helms. Mm-hmm. And then Casey sends back says, alright, what's a Spangle helm? <laughs> Now, I guess now, now that we're on the topic of the uh, the specifics uh, when it comes to this, uh, the you know, the packaging and, and the game itself, what all mm-hmm. can people expect when they back uh, Northland Saga, Lord of Ice and Cold on Indiegogo? What what all is being offered up here? Okay, we are offering two adventures and a player's guide to the Northlands. So our two adventures are the introductory ones. It starts off the adventure path. So the first one is Spring Rites. Uh, It's for brand new characters. This is where your story begins. Our heroes are seeking... They're in the the household... The service of a Jarl, which is a noble lord, Hmm. but they're not in his household yet. They're not sworn in retainers who are guaranteed a place in his hall, which is what they want. Because if you don't have that in the Northlands, then you're going to have to feed yourself some way, and you're not going to work a plow. You're an adventurer, right? Yep. You need a, a wealthy patron. So they are respected enough to be sent on a simple mission. The Jarl's three daughters are going to the edge of his domain to pick flowers for the upcoming Feast of Freya. It's a spring day. It's a lovely spring day. What could possibly go wrong? And everything goes downhill. The first part of the adventure is a very social social type of adventure where you interact with the three daughters and deal with their different personalities. Hmm. Uh, especially the middle one, Fast V, who is the fun one to write because she is the one who is causing trouble. <laughs> uh, she is the one who takes her horse and rides across fields and makes you chase her down. Because you're not going to get let the Jarl's daughter just tear ass across the fields into the countryside and disappear <laughs> into the forest. Yep. So your first physical challenge, your first combat, you could say, is catch her. Hmm. And she's going to make a break for it. Uh, 
that sort of thing. And then the second half is the daughters get kidnapped. Our heroes get knocked out. You wake up. The daughters are gone. You can't go back to the yard and be like, sorry, dude, I lost your daughters. <laughs> yeah, You gotta go rescue them. And that drives the plot, but that links in and we start foreshadowing the major plot of the Lord of Ice and Cold in that adventure. Mm -hmm. The second adventure, Spears in the Ice, is uh, while sailing in the sea uh, on a whaling trip, uh, you encounter with your Jarl an iceberg with a city on it. So you go to investigate the city, a magical storm comes up, blows the ship away, you're abandoned there uh, with four members of the crew. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but the four are the four fated to die. At four points within the adventure, these NPCs who the GM is encouraged to get you to love and like are horribly and brutally slain. There's nothing that can be done. They're dying. Yeah. It's the fate. It's fate. Uh, but you have to explore this ice palace. Who built it? What's it? What is it here for? What's its history? And from there, our heroes will discover more about Althanok, the Lord of Ice and Cold, and the threat that he's bringing to the Northlands. Mm -hmm. So that's those two adventures are the start. And then we have a player's guide, because if we're going to give you introductory adventures, let's give you the player's guide now, as yep. opposed to later on in the campaign. So you can make characters. And it's got new races, new classes, ancestries, uh, equipment, uh, naming tables. No one knows how to name characters. That's one of the reoccurring things I see in when you got a new setting. Is well, what do I call what? What do I call my character? And you can only have so many Sven Svensons in your Viking game before you get tired of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so naming tables, uh, all sorts, just a cornucopia of things for players to read and enjoy and bring to the table. Uh, we need. I like to have every campaign setting I think should have a strong player facing book to go with it. Mm -hmm. And then two, three months from now, as schedules uh, turn out, we will then do the next two adventures in the series and a setting guide to the Northlands. And we will keep that cycle up uh, as long as people still love it and want to buy it. And it's a, uh, it's, it's a th thing that is enjoyed. And that's the big part. We, we need to see the love from the fans, and we need to see that people want more of this so that we can bring you more of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I will say um, I, I definitely feel you on people don't know how to name their, their characters. That's how you get a lot of uh, pun names and uh, celebrity pastiche names in your game. Uh, and if that's your game, that's your thing. Um when I wrote Serial Bear Folk of the North, hmm. yes, we had Barry Manilow the Bard. <laughs> but that's okay. You're playing a bunch of anthropomorphic bears. Yeah. You got Barry Manilow. Hmm. Uh, these things happen. But other campaigns, you need to have a name that really fits in well with the, with the setting and with the other characters. Because you don't want to have, you know, Northland Saga, you don't want to have Olaf... Oleg, Sven, Helga, uh, Thorina, Thranja, and hi, I'm Steve the Viking. That's <laughs> yeah. That's not going to be as much fun. Mm -hmm. So I drew names from the sagas and made tables, and they're in the player's guide. Yeah, absolutely. 
And uh, a shortcut for anyone looking to create surnames for your Viking characters. Think about what your father's name was and add son to the end of it. Exactly. And for women, it's uh, Deuter. Mm-hmm. D-O with the umlauts, T-T-I-R. And I can't remember it off the top of my head. I put it in the player's guide. There has been developed, because that's still a naming system in use in some of the Nordic countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's Norway has developed a non-binary suffix to put at the end of the name mm-hmm. i can't remember what it is it's in the player's guide i can tell you that i looked it up and and put it in there gotcha i just haven't seen much use of it mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i mean it, again it, it's always it's cool to see people think of things like that where okay what is a need that needs to be addressed with uh you know the specific uh, setting because you know you want that verisimilitude you want that uh, kind of realness to be preserved so uh, y- you don't end up having uh, you know I don't know a million uh, Ragnar Lothbrooks just running around <laughs> since you know I, I guess you know people have seen Vikings so you just yeah. you know, throw that name yeah. in there Um you don't see a whole lot of people oh Rolos though, but that's just Rolo. <laughs> yep. Who whoever thinks a Rolo? No one <laughs> thinks a Rolo. Exactly. But yeah, giving people those tools to generate names that fit within the setting, but are also uh I guess, you know, usable for GMs, because you also you could run into the situation where someone just throws some like completely indecipherable Swedish at a game master and they're just like i don't even know how to say that name your name is now smiley because i think i can see that in your uh your name there i i am horribly guilty about that um uh the languages i studied in college were uh, spanish french and arabic hmm. uh, which are very useful for archaeology and then you end up doing archaeology in north america and you're like why did i learn arabic um, <laughs> so but I didn't learn any Nordic languages. Mm-hmm. I know a little bit of German. Actually, I'm studying German right now in Duolingo because that's the kind of weird person I am. Uh, but I don't know any Nordic languages. So I'm kind of guessing in the Northland saga. I, I do some linguistic research, but I don't really speak any of the languages. So sometimes I'll want a word, but I don't want to just use the Norwegian word for it or the Scandinavian word for it or the Dan- uh, Swedish name or the... Uh, Icelandic or Danish name. So I will break it into syllables and take half a syllable from one word <laughs> and half a syllable from another language and just smush them together. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid, I, I live in terror that I'm going to have a fan from one of the, the Nordic countries who's going to come up to me like, you you realize that when you named the wit- witches the Egglewith, that that <laughs> actually means. I'm going to be like, oh my god, no. <laughs> Quick, get stop the presses. We have to change everything. I did not mean to be that offensive to the Finns. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of bastardized Celtic in a lot of the stuff that I create, so I can only imagine oh, yeah. what I've what I've uh, wrought upon anyone who understands any of those languages. Exactly. Actually, I just saw Scott's Gaelic was on Duolingo. I was a little surprised by that. I mean, you expect, you know, 
languages that are lingua francas for various parts of the world, then you're like, really? Welsh? <laughs> Welsh is in it? Scots Gaelic? Okay, Klingon. Now now that's that's going a little bit too far to lingo. Yeah. That's I, I tried Russian on it, but I don't know the Cyrillic alphabet, and it just it shows you a picture of shows you the word, and I'm like, that means nothing to me. Yep. Well, we are kind of running up against our time oh. here, so uh, just to again push everyone towards this campaign because it is still ongoing. You guys have nine days left to jump on this, so I'm going to drop the link here in chat to the Indiegogo project. You can also see it in the show notes here on YouTube. Um, but if you know if, if you guys are interested in Viking adventures, if you want to support what Frog God is doing, because Frog God is one of the uh, kind of coolest independent rpg publishers out there honestly like everyone that i've encountered from frog god has been absolutely awesome yourself included so uh you know i'd like to add that uh northland saga lord of ice and cold is in three systems 5e castles and crusades and ose so whatever your style of game is we've got a system for you Mm -hmm. absolutely and you guys know that I've been pushing OSE and uh, Castles and Crusades here recently. So, uh, you know, d- definitely check this one out. It, it will be worth your time and worth your money. Cool. So with uh, with that out of the way, uh, Ken, is there anything else that you want to push people towards? Anything else you want to promote? Anywhere else you want to direct uh, When I'm not attention? doing Vikings, uh, I'm doing Rocket Age with Why Not Games with the Retro Pulp Sci-Fi, and we will be launching a Indiegogo campaign in the coming weeks. Uh, and first week of March is when we're aiming for, for Arthur's Guide to Martian Life, which will be available in Rocket Age Classic and 5e. So it's a 5e monster book based upon Pulp Sci-Fi Mars. So all sorts of fun, interesting monsters and a whole appendix on warbots. Because once you write one warbot, you got to write another one. Nice. And apparently a whole appendix on warbots. Absolutely. Including the infamous corpse control unit. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. So you guys can all look forward to that. I, I know several people who will be all over that. Um, so... They probably already play Rocket Age, so definitely look out for that in March. Uh, I I need to check that game out, as a matter of fact. I think I just got a message from... Have you had Jen on? Jen doesn't do interviews. I haven't. Okay, I think she just sent me a message to make sure to mention that this is a director's cut. Okay. Uh, Meaning that although some of the adventures... Spring Rites and um, Spears in the Ice originally appeared in Pathfinder and Swords and Wizardry versions and Northland Saga Complete. They've never appeared on their own, and I've rewritten and redesigned them to be part of the Adventure Path. And this time, I'm the one in charge of the Northland Saga. So before, I had someone else as the project manager and creative director over my shoulder. And this time, uh, they're like, well, do you want to do it again? I'm like, look at me. I am the Jarl now. Yeah, absolutely. So even if you did uh, catch it in its original form for Pathfinder, there is something new to be seen here and uh, definitely revised and expanded. And the player's guide is all brand new. Hmm. Absolutely. We've never done a, a just 
you know, player focused sort of product like this. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a lot to be excited about when it comes to this campaign. I hope you guys will all back it. And, uh, you know, that's that's going to do it for tonight's episode of Rolling Bones. Thank you for everyone who has stopped by, especially uh, considering that it's a holiday. Uh, so I appreciate on this day that we celebrate love, you all showing your love for myself and for Ken here on, on Rolling Bones. Um, oh, yeah, it's Valentine's Day. It is. I may uh, leave the Viking outfit on. We'll see. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, guys, next week, just to let you know what's coming up uh, on Rolling Bones, I'm going to be bringing on Orcus Dorcas for the very first time, and uh, he is not coming alone. He's bringing his son, and we are going to have a conversation all about uh, the future of role-playing games and the way that people uh, you know, who, who are teenagers right now are experiencing role-playing games and what that means for you know what we can expect in the future when it comes to rpgs so hope you guys will join me for that conversation uh you know orcus dorcas is great if you follow him on twitter if you you know listen to titter pigs or you know consume any of the other content that scott's been on he is a he's fantastic so hope you guys will join me next week and until then whether you rolled a one or 20 i am so glad that you rolled your bones with me ryan howard Go check out Northland Saga on Indiegogo, and I will see you all next time.